Good morning, everyone. Um, This morning we're reading um, chapter 10 from the book of Ecclesiastes um, through to chapter 11, finishing at verse 8. And that's found on page 677 of our Bibles. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offences to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, More strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed, the charmer receives no fee. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning their words are folly, at the end they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? The toil of fools wearies them. They do not know the way to town. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts. Or curse the rich in your bedroom. Because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the winds will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the winds, 
or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all, but let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Thank you, Camilla, for reading that passage. Um, Something of a marathon, but thank you very much indeed for reading it all for us. Um, This morning, we're... For those of you who've got good memories, you'll know that we're actually coming back to a series we started earlier this autumn in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We've actually taken a break of about a month away from it. Um, We've had a short series of sermons picking up some of the truths that were rediscovered at the time of the Reformation. And of course, we also had our Mission Awareness Sunday at the end of October. But we're back, back in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, People react to Ecclesiastes in lots of different ways. Some people say, it's a bit different, isn't it? Others say, it's a bit unusual. It's a bit downbeat. And uh, a lot of people say, it's a bit difficult to get your head round. So because all these things are probably true, let's ask God to help us understand this part of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us the Bible, you've given us your word, and thank you that we're told that all of it is useful, all of it is profitable, all of this will help us grow in our understanding of you, understanding of our Christian commitment. So Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd take these words from Ecclesiastes and help us to understand the truths that you want us to understand this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. However you react to Ecclesiastes, there's no doubt that Ecclesiastes is is different from many of the other books in the Bible. Uh, One writer's pointed out that many of the books in the Bible start with God and go on to apply God to different aspects of life. Think of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They start with God. Ecclesiastes, however, instead of starting with God, starts with life and goes on to relate life to God. What does this book have to say about life? Well, this is, if you like, a little bit of a summary of some of the things that have gone, uh, gone before. But one of the things that Ecclesiastes has to say about life is that life is disappointing. The very first opening words of the book are meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. And in case you haven't got the message, everything is meaningless. Uh, You may know that older translations of the Bible will translate that word meaningless, vanity. And if you remember to Phil speaking right at the beginning of this series, he suggested that another word that you could use in place of meaningless is the word vapour. It's this idea that life is elusive, uncertain, always dancing away from you, always hard to get a grip on. It flatters only to deceive. 
We think we've got life figured out. We think we've got it fixed. And we discover we haven't. We chase the promotion. We don't get it. We chase the dream job. And we do get it. And then we discover all the things they didn't get round to telling us at the interview. The nice neighbours who move in next door turn out not to be so nice after all. People we trust let us down. That's life. It's disappointing. But not only is life disappointing, life is also difficult. Right at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the writer asks, what do people gain from all their labours which they toil under the sun? Ecclesiastes is a relatively short book, and yet the word toil, or a variant of it, appears over 20 times. In fact, uh, of all the books in the Bible, and, depending on what, and it doesn't really vary much depending on which translation you look, just under half the occasions where you read the word toil appear in this book. There's obviously a message. Toil, effort, hard work is part of life. The previous chapter, chapter 9, describes the lot of humanity as being toilsome labor under the sun. Uh, There may be little to show, show for life, but it sure is hard work getting there. Difficult, disappointing, But finally, and this may seem like a contradiction, uh, the book of Ecclesiastics also tells us that life is delightful. The writer of Ecclesiastes is often regarded as the Eeyore of the Bible. You know, when he's not gloomy, he's miserable. Uh, Well, that's not the whole story. Uh, In spite of everything he has to say about the difficulties and the disappointments of life, he's not a killjoy. He knows that there is much in life to enjoy. And in one sense, his advice is, go for it. Again, looking back to the previous chapter, chapter 9 and verse 7, he writes, Eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Even when life is difficult. Again, in chapter 5, he speaks of finding satisfaction in toilsome labor. You know, there is satisfaction to be found in our work, even if it is also difficult and trying at times. And, you know, I guess most of us know that's true. Life is to be enjoyed in spite of everything. There's nothing better to eat well, enjoy our work, receive with gladness the good things that God gives us, drink with a merry heart, and live joyfully with the husband or the wife whom we love. Disappointing, difficult, delightful. Three ideas which are actually quite neatly summed up in the final verse that Camilla read for us this morning. Verse 8 of chapter 11. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness. For there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. But you may still feel that this is an odd combination you may feel that it's kind of out of sync. Well, maybe. But, you know, what the writer of this book is actually doing is affirming the Bible's understanding of what life in a fallen and broken world actually is. Events that are recorded in the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis 1 through to 3, uh, the story of the creation of the world and of the entry of sin into the world through humanity's rejection of God, an event that's often called the fall. 
if you remember the story, you'll remember that Genesis tells us that God created a good world, a garden, a place that was both pleasant and productive, a place that provided for the needs of men and women, but was also delightful to be in as well. But it goes on to tell us of the entry of sin into that good world and the breakdown of harmony. The relationship between God and human beings is broken. And as a result, relationships between people are damaged. Life becomes disappointing. People start to let us down. And relationships between people and creation are damaged. Life becomes difficult. Getting the food you need becomes toil. The coming of sin into the world damages these relationships, but it doesn't destroy them. God made a good world, a world that was great to be in, and while it's damaged, it's not been destroyed. And that's why there is so much still to delight us in the world in which we live in. So many good things for us to enjoy. But men and women can easily lurch into damaging the good things that God has provided. And hovering above it all are those two twin curses of disappointment and difficulty. And that, the writer of this book says, is life. That is life in a fallen and broken world. And certainly one of the key messages that this book has for us is that we need to face up to the reality of the world in which we live. We need to face up to the reality of a life in a fallen world. But what about our reading this morning? Chapters 10 and 11. What are we to make of them? What are we to say about them? To be honest with you, many people have struggled to make sense of them. And I must confess, over the past week, I was one of them. And I'm still not sure what all of it is about. Um, Some people have tried to find a logical progression in this chapter. Others have just given up trying. One writer speaks of a a lack of logical organization in this section. Yes, maybe. But, you know, maybe life's like that. Life isn't always terribly logical, is it? You know, maybe in these chapters we do kind of have a picture of the messiness and disorganization of life as we actually find it. It comes across, doesn't it, as a collection of miscellaneous thoughts about this and that. Now, in a sense, that's not as unusual as you might think it is. I mean, we're very used to sort of logical trains of thought. Uh, But in the Hebrew world, this sort of approach to things was a recognized literary tradition. If you think about the book of Proverbs, well, this is, you know, Proverbs is this, but far more so. Because in Proverbs, you have a truly miscellaneous collection of thoughts about all sorts of aspects of human life. And this is very similar to much of what we find in the book of Proverbs. Um, In a way, it's more impressionistic than logical. It gives you an impression of life rather than a logical argument about life. But unlike some parts of Proverbs that seem to be completely random at times there are a couple of themes that seem to be rising to the top. One of them's folly, and one of them's government. Isn't that surprising? 
You know, as you read through this chapter, chapter 10 in particular, you can't help noticing that these references to folly and references to rulers seem to keep on coming up. Perhaps one question that's being asked in this chapter is, why is it that the world is run in quite the way that it is? Why are organizations, you know, sometimes they seem to be, well, just a bit of a shambles? And below that is perhaps the question, why is life so uncertain and so unpredictable? The previous chapter ends with what I suppose you might call a parable about folly's opposite, wisdom. Like many things in Ecclesiastes, its message is downbeat. Wisdom is valuable and helpful, but seldom appreciated or remembered. In the real fallen world in which we live, wisdom and trying hard are not always a guaranteed route to success. It's good, but it may not be appreciated. And verse 1 of chapter 10 takes this further to remind us that folly is pervasive and a little goes a long way. Do you remember the first words that Camilla read for us? As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. On one side, wisdom, something positive, something that protects, something that builds up. On the other side, folly, something destructive, something that spoils. And where a little goes a long way, in life it takes far less effort to ruin something than to create it. It's an uncomfortable thought, but for instance, in our relationships with others, to use equally blunt language, isn't it easier to create a stink than to create sweetness. Indeed, isn't this one of the unfair advantages that evil has in our world? The sudden lapse, the thoughtless word, the foolish impulse can do untold damage, and repairing that damage can take ages. I mean, after all, what are you more likely to remember? What are you more likely to brood over, to dwell on? The kind word or the unkind one? If you're like me, it's the second. I'm sure by now you will have realized that the writer of Ecclesiastes is not using the words folly and wisdom simply to describe intellectual ability or to describe the fact that some people are more intelligent than others or better educated or have accumulated more experience of life. Nor is he thinking about something like emotional intelligence, the fact that some people are more sensitive than others. Because the next verse, chapter verse 2, reminds us that the folly that's being spoken about has a moral and a spiritual dimension to it. We're not talking about politics in verse 2, when he talks about the heart of the wise inclining to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. What he's doing is picking up on a widely held idea in the ancient world that associated the right-hand side with good fortune and good decisions and the left-hand side with uh, bad fortune or, or bad decisions. If you think forward to the New Testament, you'll remember that Jesus told a parable in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, about sheep and goats. And he used the same figure of speech, speaking of the right-hand side to denote blessing and the left-hand side to denote condemnation. Uh, Jesus and the writer of the Ecclesiastics were using exactly the same figure of speech to make their point. There are two alternatives, one good and one bad, but perhaps today we're not quite so comfortable with that figure of speech. 
So one writer has paraphrased this verse this way, and that may be helpful. A wise man's heart leads him aright. The fool's heart leads him astray. Leads him astray to the less valuable, the less helpful, the less good, and at worst to the positively wicked. The moral and spiritual dimension to both folly and wisdom is explored in greater detail in the book of Proverbs. For instance, speaking of wisdom, the book of Proverbs in chapter 9 and verse 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And that same idea is repeated in the book of Psalms and the book of Job, and even right at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And as for the fool, well, earlier in the book of Proverbs, right at the beginning in chapter 1, it says, yes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The book of Psalms tells us that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's the same attitude that we find in the opening chapters of Genesis. True folly is a continuation of the sin of rejecting God. The attitudes that says, there's no God, and even if there is, it doesn't matter. And the effect of this, or the effect of this, is that it makes life uncertain. Later on in chapter 10, it talks about some of the effects of folly. It speaks about inappropriate behavior, and it speaks about inappropriate leaders. For instance, look at verses 5 to 7. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. It's the picture of a nation or of a government that's in disorder. Inappropriate people are at the top. People who should be honored are ignored. And the implication is that this is the result of a capricious ruler making foolish decisions, favoring an incompetent relative, perhaps, or repaying a favor. Later on in the chapter, we have a second picture of folly in high places, leading to chaos and disorder. Not only are the wrong people in charge, but they're living their lives to please themselves. Verses 16 and 17 describe a country where the king is a servant, I think that means a king who's not really in charge and whose princes, whose rulers are living for themselves, who feast in the morning instead of eating at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Now, these are perhaps extreme examples. Perhaps we feel that we have the good fortune not to live in a country run like that. But even as we think about the affairs of, you know, modern democracies... Uh, we know how, you know, careless words from politicians can create untold damage and difficulty. There are some people, as you probably know, who believe that the things that happen in our world are the result of some great conspiracy. Faceless people, very intelligent, doing this, that, and, and pulling all the strings and all the rest of it. There are other people who believe that most of what happens in the world is the result of chaos. Don't know which side of that argument you're inclined to fall down on, but I think the book of Ecclesiastes is on the side of chaos. You know, uh, we live in a world where inappropriate people find themselves in inappropriate positions, behave foolish, 
And because a little folly goes a long way, life is bound to be a chaotic. Life is bound to be uncertain. Life is bound to be unpredictable. And if you look at other parts of the reading, you get the same message. I mean, that section in the chapter 11 that Camilla read to us, on the face of it, it seems like practical advice about business. Invest in seven ventures, yes in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. You know, and so it goes on. Now, it's not simply saying that we need to diversify our investment portfolio and not put all our eggs in one basket. That may be good advice, but the key message, the key message is that nobody really knows what's going to happen. Why? Because life's uncertain. There are no sure things. We don't know what disaster might come upon this land. We've absolutely no idea what's going to succeed. Oh, look at that section in chapter 10 from verse 8 to 11. Just look at verse 8. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may, by, may be bitten by a snake. It's the same message. Things may not go the way you hope. You know, you may think you're just putting in a new window, breaking through a wall, putting in a hatch between the kitchen and the dining room. What's wrong with that? Uh, and, well, the house collapses on you. You're probably not going to be bitten by a snake in England, but you probably would be bitten by a snake in Palestine. Life is uncertain. Life is unpredictable. We just do not know what's going to happen. And that's life. How should we cope with this? Well, certainly chapter 10 supports the general thrust of the Bible that we should turn away from folly and pursue wisdom, we should remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning or the foundation of wisdom. But this passage does point to one more thing. Life may be lots of things, disappointing, difficult, always uncertain, but God. Just look at me for a moment with me at verse 5 of chapter 11. As you do not know the path of the wind... Or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. There's lots of things in this world that we don't know. There's lots of things in life that we just can't hope to predict. Our guesses may be there or thereabouts, but they won't always be right. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that in addition to the things about life that we don't know and we don't necessarily understand, we also don't necessarily understand the ways and the mind and the plans and the purposes of God. If you think back to the Old Testament, people often didn't understand or accept the message of the prophets. In the New Testament, they often didn't understand or accept the words of Jesus. And many still don't. Might hurt our vanity, but we need to remember the but God when we struggle with the life is. God is active. We may not understand now what he is doing, but that doesn't mean he's not active. That doesn't mean that he's not doing things. That doesn't mean that he's not doing things, as Catherine reminded us, that are motivated by grace are motivated by a desire to extend help and support and, and love to human beings. 
As we come to a conclusion, can I suggest just three implications that flow from this? Firstly, we need to consider humility. We don't know it all. We're not smarter than God. Uh, As 1 Peter puts it, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Secondly, we need to practice trust. Things that happen in the world may surprise us. They may trouble us. But because God is not idle, because God is at work, we can have reason for confidence. In the book of Jeremiah, about halfway through, halfway through a fairly downbeat message with a great deal of hard things for God's peoples to hear, Jeremiah says these words, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We should approach the life which we find ourselves remembering but God and face them with trust. And finally, we should seek discernment, a mindset that actively seeks to understand what God is doing in his world. I mean, in a sense, we recognized right at the start of the sermon, didn't we, when we asked God to help us understand this particular passage of Scripture. A mindset which is seeking to understand what God is doing in this world so that we can work in harmony with him rather than at cross-purposes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, we're told that a person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. As we cope with life, we need to seek to understand what God is doing and what God is saying. We need to seek the inspiration and help of the Spirit of God to lead us into this understanding and to lead us into this truth. As I was reading around this part of Ecclesiastes, I I came across this quotation, which I thought was quite helpful, quite good at summing it all up. Everything that has been said about wisdom and folly points again to the main lesson of Ecclesiastes. We need to face life as it really is and take our life day by day from the hand of a sovereign God the writer of Ecclesiastes yes he does invite us to have a hard look of life his view is unflinching it's not motivated by anything that you could describe as sentimentality life is difficult it's disappointing it's delights are partial and fleeting But life is not hopeless. Life is, yes, that will let us down. But God, but God will give us hope. How do we cope with life as we find it? We remember but God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for some of us, life will probably be going quite well. Lots of delights, lots of good things. For others of us, Heavenly Father, we'll be able to identify more with the words of Ecclesiastes because, Father, we'll be grappling with the disappointments and the difficulties and the uncertainties of life. Heavenly Father, help all of us to remember that it's only in trusting you 
in only in seeking your help, in only seeking your grace, in only seeking the ministry of the Spirit in our lives, that we will be able to cope with both life's delights and also its difficulties and its disappointments. Heavenly Father, this day, this week, this month, help us to remember but God. Amen.